0: Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either.
1: It's an update episode. There have been quite a few updates to some of the cases that we've covered through the course of this podcast, and we want to tell you all about it. This is Bob, and I've got a word of caution for you here. When we recorded this episode, I had some kind of god-awful flu or something. I don't know running a 103-degree fever and everything else, and uh, Will just wouldn't let that stop production and insisted that we record this anyway. So you won't hear a whole lot of my voice in this one. I know you're relieved about that. When you do hear me, if I sound delirious or insane, uh, that's the reason it's nothing fun. All right, let's get going and talk about some of these new developments and
0: updates. Now the first update that we want to talk about is a major update uh the Colonial Parkway murders and I think we talked about these in episodes 4 through 8 and this was a series of four double homicides that occurred over a span of just a few years and they all occurred in around on the Colonial Parkway down in uh, around like uh, you know Williamsburg Virginia that area and those th- these cases have you know went unsolved for 30 plus years. And so through those episodes, you know, we encouraged folks that had tips to reach out. We talked about possible um, suspects and theories. We compared the similarities between each of the crimes and the differences in uh, our episode of putting it all together. And one of the things that we noted was about a suspect who had been developed in the disappearance of Keith and Sandy. Um, this this guy whose vehicle had been spotted a license plate they got and so he was looked really good for this he was you know near the scene around the time and so you know the fbi actually went and I think Virginia State Police, there were warrants, they worked together. And this guy, eventually, he, he got interviewed and got polygraphed and he was cleared based on the poly. And Bob and I both were sort of flabbergasted that you would just kind of stop looking into somebody just because they passed a polygraph when there's other evidence to indicate that um, they did it. Not not that, you know, that can't be helpful, but certainly it seemed like there was more work to do there.
1: The FBI used it like a hard stop. Like, this is our guy, we're interested. And then it was, well, we had a great public. Poly- telegraph examiner check him out and he's telling the truth he's he didn't do it he's not lying move on that's it don't even talk about this guy anymore what
0: yeah and he was a good enough suspect that they got warrants they went to his house and he was actually i think it was like when they showed up uh he, he had just gotten done like cleaning out the bed of his truck with chemicals and stuff i mean it was and and but then in his house you know they only found um some things that you know, could lend themselves to the idea that this guy might be your guy, but nothing to incriminate him. And I think that was stuff like, you know, some handcuffs and different things and some maybe some weird porn or, you know, there were some things in there that raised an eyebrow but were not enough to arrest the guy. And so they they did the poly and then, like you said, that was, that was the hard stop. They just walked away from it. And I'd encourage you, uh, there's a book by an author named Blaine Pardot uh, and that's actually where we got that information about the FBI polygraph and how investigators essentially just stopped looking into this guy once, uh, once he passed the poly. So with that kind of background from the original episodes, the big update in this case is that investigators have linked this guy, whose name is Alan Wilmer Sr., his DNA to One of the double homicides specifically, we're talking about David Knobling and um, Robin Edwards, and they were able to link him to that crime through evidence that was recovered from Robin because she had been sexually assaulted. And so they were able to definitively link this Alan Wilmer Sr. guy to this crime, uh, which is huge. I mean, it's absolutely huge. Bob, just initial thoughts before we dive into it. Anymore uh, specifically?
1: You know, my first thought is just renewed outrage. I remember when we went through discussing the case of David and Robin, how it was discussion of they've got this guy that looked really good, but they had a polygraph examiner that they just thought the world of. And he said, you know, nope, he's not being deceptive and he didn't do it and he doesn't know anything about it. So that's that. I was just kind of outraged by that at the point and still am now because this was 87, somewhere back in there. Lair- We're like 30 freaking years that the crime happened.
0: Nobling and Edwards was 87. Keith and Sandy would have been 88. And that was who he he was actually a suspect. Keith and Sandy's disappearance, which their bodies have still never been found. So he was this like really good looking suspect for their case. But now he's been tied to this case, which just to remind folks, or if you don't know, this one occurred out at Isle of uh, White County is out there at the Ragged Island Preserve. And so this one was probably, I would say, the furthest distance in terms of drive time to get from like where the parkway is to where this occurred, where they found the bodies and and the car, David's truck. So to me, it's kind of interesting that he was a prime suspect in one that occurred right there on the parkway. And then this one, which I think some people would have said, well, this one's pretty far away. And you know, oh, and there's a gun that was used. And so that remember when we went through the differences, there were a lot of differences with this one where you kind of think, well, is it actually related or not? And so now we have, you know, he's the prime suspect because his vehicle with this distinctive vanity plate was spotted near the scene at the time and then he's connected to this one that's far out there and it, to me it just seems to lend itself toward the idea that these are all connected and that this guy probably was involved in all four of them
1: well I think uh definitely the other one where he was a suspect I assume they were probably looking pretty hard at that one again and I bet he comes back on that one something else that jumped out at me is this guy is well he's he's dead now thank goodness but he's an Avid, like hunter outdoorsman type fella, and a fisherman by trade. The hunting part, it really struck me because the last in the series that we covered the couple up by the rest stop that were then found on the logging trail. And we talked about, you know, whoever put their bodies out there in that logging trail, that's somebody that knows what that is, where it is. It's, a, it's an outdoor person. They didn't just happen upon this spot. So it just perks up my ears that even though that one seemed the most different from the rest, maybe he's the guy. It'll be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And and that logging trail was not far from a private hunt club. And you're exactly right. So this dude, in addition to being a, a waterman who was all about you know these oysters and fishing and all that stuff, was an avid hunter. And so part of what's going on with this update is the the investigators. Okay, they have the DNA that connects him, but now you know they have lots of questions, and he's dead. And so they're trying to kind of go back and construct you know a timeline of. Where was this guy? What was he into? Who did he know? What was he doing? What vehicles did he have? Where did he live? I mean, all these things that you need people to kind of help fill in. And it sounds like this dude was somewhat of a loner, even though he had, you know, he was married and had kids at one time. So they're asking for the public's help. You know, if you knew this guy, if you lived near him, if you shopped at the same grocery store or anything, it doesn't matter how trivial you think it is. If you have any information at all about Alan Wilmer Sr., anything, you need to contact law enforcement, uh, the Virginia State Police, the FBI, and you need to give them that information, please. That's going to be what helps to try to nail down, you know, where he was, what he was doing, and, and maybe maybe some of that information is going to help them to be able to to find clues or to find evidence. Uh, that will hopefully be able to cross off some of these other cases and, and to close them as well.
1: Right. Now, let's not overlook that in addition to the case of David and Robin, DNA also from this guy, they attributed another murder to him that wasn't necessarily part of the Colonial Parkway murders.
0: Yeah. And so that other one is uh, from a case from 1989. And the victim in that case, her name was Teresa Lynn Spall Howe. She was 29 years old. And this one occurred in uh, the city of Hampton. Uh, So... You just wonder, and, and I'm sure this is something law enforcement, I hope, and I would imagine they're doing, and I'm sure people, victims advocate groups and, and cold case people and things like that are looking at That's part of understanding the need to understand the timeline, where he was, where he traveled, what he was doing, because you can start to look at cases that are outside this perimeter. You know, if he's going that far, where else did he go? What else was he doing? And if there are any other unsolved missing persons cases or homicides, I think, you know, Bill Thomas has said, and I agree with his thought, right? Like this guy by the law enforcement definition is a serial killer. So it's really hard for me. And I agree with Bill. He's kind of said this too. It is really hard for me to think that um, he just killed these three people and that was it. That's all he ever did. It stands to reason that if he did uh, these murders, that he's most likely responsible for for others.
1: Right. and I think we'll we will find that in addition to David and Robin, we probably will find that he's responsible for at least one other set of the Colonial Parkway murders, if not all of them. And we've talked about the evidence for and against it being. Those four double homicides all being the same person or maybe two or three of them being the same person and one being something different. But I have a feeling this guy is going to come up again in the Colonial Parkway murders. And I, I remember being very frustrated when we talked about Kathy and Becky because uh, that was the one where was it the FBI that had sent DNA and it uh, was sent to the wrong place, showed up at some random police department who called him and said, Hey, you sent us this DNA, we need to get it back to you. And they were like, eh, no, just, just throw it away. And the police department was like, no, 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 this is DNA. You, you sent for testing, but you sent it to us. And the FBI was like, no, you're not understanding, throw it in the trash. So I am a little concerned about what DNA might be missing. That might not even be testable at this point to give some closure and some answers.
0: Yeah. Just to clarify, I'm, my recollection is that that was the uh, the rape kits actually from Kathy and Becky, that that's what the FBI had sent and they inadvertently sent it to the, they sent the wrong ones to this police department and, and then the rest of the story exactly like you had it. And, and it is concerning, but I, it does seem to be my understanding is that there is evidence that can be tested in Kathy and Becky's case. And it's just a matter of it hasn't been, uh, which of course has been just, I mean, I don't understand that at all. And I would hope if that was still going on, that they still weren't testing it now with this new development that, okay, you actually have somebody who is a very good, if not likely, suspect to compare, to look at it, okay, now we we need to take the next step and get this done.
1: Yeah, right. And I, I see what you're saying. I was a little mixed up there. So the rape kits are what was sent to the wrong place and directed to be discarded, but not that the rape kits necessarily did or didn't contain DNA. I kind of jumped to that conclusion incorrectly. And and as you said, there is DNA. We've heard from Bill Thomas, there is DNA. Now they've got somebody to test it against. So let's let's see what we got here.
0: I think it's important to, uh, this, this is part, I, I just... The whole way that, that this break has happened is by sheer luck. It has nothing to do. Well, I shouldn't say nothing. No, I'm going to say nothing. It's nothing to do. It's not like, because when this first happened, Wilmer died in 2017. So let's start there. So he died in 2017. So now here we are, 2024, and there's this announcement that, hey, we've connected uh, the, this guy to the, this one double homicide from the Colonial Parkway murders and this other case. And my initial thought was, I know DNA testing takes a little bit of time, but it doesn't take seven years or more. So how in the world did it come to be that, you know, seven years after this guy dies, that's when we figure out that he's the dude. So what happened is, especially later in life from what I'm hearing or reading or both, Wilmer was a loner and at the end of his life, essentially he, he kind of, he died and then some time passed, a significant amount of time and somebody realized, I think he had a door, the door was open or something and some kind of, you know, mailman, delivery guy, whatever, sees that, oh, this looks off and then discovers that, you know, there's a dead person. Well, because of the advanced state of decay of Wilmer's body when 911 shows up, In order to confirm, hey, this is actually who it is, they took samples and they ran his DNA to make sure he was actually Alan Wilmer Sr. Had it not been for that, this case still wouldn't be solved. So it's just by sheer luck that this dude dies, that he dies alone, and that so much time passes between the time that he dies and anybody discovers his dead body that they have to do DNA testing just to prove that he is who he is. And then, wait a second, this guy, wasn't he? Oh, let's compare that now that we have this DNA. Oh, oh, wow. Look, he's actually the guy who sexually assaulted and presumably then murdered these two people. A little mind boggling for me. Um, Again, if I, I just at some point in the past, knowing that that guy was a suspect who was only cleared by a poly in 1988. Okay, fine. I get it. But the people who the FBI, the Virginia State Police have been working on this case, supposedly since 1988, was there not a point in the 2000s, at least where DNA technology came to be what it is that they had the react? Well, why didn't anybody have the reaction? We did, which is, yeah, sure. A poly exam is a tool, but it, it, honestly, I think they're, they're garbage. I just don't even think there's really any value to them at all because they're just not, they're inadmissible. Uh, there's some value in certain circumstances, but in terms of these kind of investigations, uh, to me, it's just, uh, that's nothing. I don't care about that at all. So you'd think somebody working on this case would have said, well, that guy was near the crime scene. There was some suspicious stuff when they went to serve the warrants. And the only way they ever cleared him was with a poly. Maybe we should go and sit outside his house and try to get some trash or ask him for a DNA sample or whatever. But nobody ever did that. I, I just don't, you know, in a case like this where there, where there were some suspects, but it wasn't like the, the JonBenet Ramsey case where there's 10,000 suspects because everybody's either admitted to it or a suspect or whatever. I mean, there's a very small pool of suspects here. So you'd think, at least from, you know, a forensic standpoint, you would do whatever you could to try to link or exclude that group of people, which apparently, since it took till now for that to happen, never happened before. Right. And I just think that's that's blows my mind. I think it's it is a disservice to the victims, to the victims families. I think it's unacceptable. And I know I'm speaking kind of harsh here, but there's just I don't see how this case lingers on for over three decades without anybody working on it going. "Hmm, Maybe we need to try to do something different. Right. Uh, Maybe we need to reexamine this and think about it critically in a different kind of light but apparently that's what happened
1: right and perhaps had we focused our efforts differently in the beginning after the first or second case maybe we could have prevented the third or fourth or these other cases that didn't even know were related or didn't even realize were the same person but could have got this guy off the street
0: Uh, absolutely and and again yeah he lived to the ripe old age of i think it was like 63 or something and you know we know he killed three people so how many other people did he kill i it's I'm sure it's more. I'm with Bill. There's no way a guy like this does something like that and then just, oh, okay, I'm done. It, it doesn't happen. Uh, the last thing I want to say about this and, and Bill in listening to uh, his podcast and some news spots he's done uh, recently, there's been a lot of backlash to Alan Wilmer Jr., which is this guy that we're talking about's son. That guy was like, I think, eight when this stuff was. I mean, he was a child when this stuff was going on. Uh, You don't get to pick your dad. Uh, There's been no indication by anybody whatsoever that eight-year-old this guy's son was in any way aware of or involved in or had any sort of nefarious connection to this stuff. Uh, And I've seen it from Bill and I've seen it from um, one of Robin's sisters. You know, they're basically like, hey, listen, like that guy at this point. Wilmer Sr.'s kids are, are victims in this too, because now they have to live knowing that their dad was this like horrible person, this the, the Colonial Parkway murderer, most likely. And they didn't ask for that. They didn't do anything to bring that on. They're not in any way involved or associated with that. And so I think it's important to just say, people need to not take out what dad did on dad's kids. That's, that's not fair. And that's not right. And you just shouldn't do that. So don't do that.
1: That sins of the father thing is not fair. I just can't imagine his family who say that finding this out now is completely inconsistent with the person they knew and they would have never, ever guessed this. I mean, what a shock they had in a statement they released where they said, we had no idea and we're, we're shocked and we're grieving with the the families of the victims and fully cooperating with law enforcement. So uh, they're doing all they can to, I don't want to say right the wrong, but you know, all they can to help the situation, not, not hurt it. And they're victims too. You're right.
0: Yeah. They didn't ask for it. So let's not, you know, people, there's been reports people, you know, sending them all kinds of threats and nasty grams and posting stuff on social media and whatever and just stop it. There's there's no need for that. Focus, you know, harness that energy and put it into something productive, you know, support the victims in, in some kind of way. Or they don't want that. I mean, from Bill's mouth and Robin's sister and everybody that everybody that I've read, like that's not helping anything. That's not helping the case. It's not honoring to uh, the Colonial Parkway murders victims. So just don't do it, man. That's it's not cool.
1: Agreed. Agreed. All right. What other what's the next update you got for us?
0: we got a lot. And uh, this next one ties in with our BOS awards, our BOS award winners. So the next one deals with the sextortionists. And in particular, uh, I think that was episode 12. In that episode, we talked about a set of brothers, the Ogashi brothers, Samuel and Samson. And uh, that had to do with a case that was out of uh, Michigan where they had um, basically, they conducted a sextortion s- scheme from Nigeria, which is where they were from, where they live, and where they were at at the time, uh, that resulted in a young man taking his life. And the government, the federal government, we had noted in the episode, like, hey, they're going after these guys. They're trying to get them extradited. That's a whole process. It's not easy. And, but uh, three days after our episode went live on August 13th, 2023, the men were extradited from Nigeria to the United States and they were arraigned, uh, shortly thereafter on August 17th. They've pled not guilty. And uh, as far as I can tell, it appears that those charges are still pending and that they are awaiting trial. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and see what ends up happening, what kind of sentences they get. But, uh, that had to do with the sextortion and, and unfortunate and tragic death, a 17 year old young man named Jordan DeMay from Marquette and, uh, you know, again, just tragic and awful. And for his family, you can do whatever you want to, the Ogashis oh that doesn't bring Jordan back. So I'm glad that the government is taking these kind of crimes seriously to go through the steps to extradite and to bring justice to people who are, you know, halfway around the world. And that is, that is good. We're, we're glad to see that, but just still so such a heartbreaking thing to have to deal with.
1: Oh, heck yeah. And unfortunately, there's so many others like the Ogashi brothers that are out there doing this, both foreign and domestic, that are perpetrating this horrible crime and, you know, victimizing very vulnerable people. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. But, yeah, justice needs to be had. And, you know, these these guys, they make you miss the Nigerian prince that wants to give you his billions of dollars worth
0: of gold. Yeah, you just got to send him some Apple gift cards and then he'll let you hold his gold for him. I, I, I missed that scheme, too.
1: I mean, those those people are saints compared to the sadistic evil that that is the sextortionists.
0: I completely agree. I completely agree. And. You know, while we're talking about evil, jumping into the next update, we have the murder of Tupac. And I know that's near and dear to your heart. I know you love some Pac and you were uh, singing uh, some song lyrics in that episode, completely unprompted, unscripted. And so I know this one is close to your heart. Keefy D, this guy, Dwayne Davis, was charged with the murder of Tupac just after the 27th anniversary, which our episode... Uh, on Tupac it was a two-parter the first part came out on on the 27th anniversary of his shooting and at the end of that month in September 2023 that's when Keefy D was arrested for his murder which is wild I mean we I think in the episode made it pretty clear it seemed like this guy was the only living dude who uh a guy who was still alive who was involved and seemed sort of like the shot caller behind the actual shooting. Uh, and that's what prosecutors are alleging. And the most recent update in his case, as he's awaiting trial, which I believe is scheduled for June of 2024, his legal team kind of battled it out with the state over whether he could have bond because you know, he didn't want to hang out in, in jail pending his trial. And part of that, he they argued that you know he's got some medical issues. He's kind of in remission from colon cancer. He's 60 years old, yada, yada, yada. The prosecution came back and said, well, no, he shouldn't be released at all because on these jail calls with him and his son, you can hear him talking about a green light and this plan to kill witnesses and all this stuff. And they said that the FBI had even gotten involved and was helping with witness protection on at least one witness. The defense countered and said, no, that's not at all what's on the call. There's no mention of any witnesses that, in fact, what they're talking about with this green light thing is Dwayne's son is telling uh, Keefy D that there's a green light on their family, meaning that somebody has put out a hit on them and that they're in danger. So at the end of the day, the judge said, uh, no defense, we're not going to give you the $100,000 bail that you're asking for, but I'll do a $750,000 bond. Part of the conditions, though, D has to remain on electronic monitoring and house arrest. So assuming that he posts that bond, which it sounded like that was going to happen, he will be uh, required to stay at home other than when he's going to court and most likely medical appointments, things like that. And they will be monitoring him with an ankle bracelet. So that is where we are with the, the Tupac trial. I'm sure whenever the trial pops off, we will cover and talk about that.
1: You know, the only reason that house arrest for Keefe D. even makes any sense at all is that, uh, you know, it's not costing the taxpayers a fortune to house him. But no, I think he he need to be locked up.
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm interested to see how that trial pans out. It's going to be we'll we'll be tuned into that one and we will definitely do a uh, more in-depth update, assuming that a trial happens. But it seems it seems somewhat likely. I think this is the kind of case that makes sense to go to trial. So unless they give him some kind of sweet deal, I imagine that'll be the case. With uh, Having talked about Tupac now, uh, you got an update for us on uh, Lynn Hernan's case, the sentencing that was to be and then maybe didn't happen and all that.
1: Yeah, the circus that is uh, Jesse Krzyzewski. Krisch- uh, yeah, she, her name is hard to pronounce and my tongue is not working. Jesse Krzyzewski, I think is how they pronounce it.
0: I told you, you got to quit, quit drinking for breakfast and then you'd be able to do this.
1: Well, I didn't have any milk for my cornflakes, so vodka seemed like a good alternative. Anyway, she was convicted on November 14th of 23 for a first-degree intentional homicide of her family friend, Lynn Hernan, who treated her like a daughter. Uh, she apparently uh, stole a whole bunch of money, like hundreds of thousands from from Lynn over the course of a year or two, and then murdered her with eye drops, which is just crazy. So she's convicted in November. She was scheduled to be sentenced in December. But then this uh, this letter appeared that purports to be written by Jesse, the uh, convicted killer. Uh, and in this letter, there were just a whole bunch of wild things said, including implicating her attorneys in asking uh, this friend that the letter was sent to, asking this friend to basically manufacture evidence, which is insane. And so her attorneys, uh, rightly so, were rather shaken up by this and said, uh, Look, we got to look out for our own skin here. There's this letter that uh, she. May or may not have written, but it's being alleged that she wrote, and in it she, you know, it, we're being accused of of doing this stuff. So we can't really represent her. And she said, "Yep, I'm I'm done with them. I don't. They can't represent me anymore. I need a new attorney. So I can't be sentenced today." And. The judge uh, agreed with that and said, "Okay, well, you know, we got to get you a new attorney. It'll be court appointed, of course. The the two attorneys that you've had are are free to go and we'll see you back here in January. So that was in November. I'm sorry. November was a conviction. December was supposed to be the first sentencing. But really, it's just when the uh, attorneys that represented her through trial were allowed to withdraw.
0: Yeah, January got here and she's got new attorneys. Then what happened?
1: Well, January 12th was her next uh, status hearing, and when she showed up, I guess she had been appointed... Two new attorneys, they, however, requested to withdraw, and the judge granted that request, and now she's got another one, another new attorney, which I believe this now makes eight attorneys that she's had. Well, eight attorneys have withdrawn since June of 2021, so...
0: They're going to run out of attorneys soon.
1: Right, right. I mean... You know, if you're an attorney in Wisconsin, you may be called up next. I don't know. But apparently she does now have uh, Russell J.A. Jones, who has accepted appointment as her newest attorney, and she is now scheduled for her sentencing on April 5th at 9 a.m. So... Uh, we'll see what, what happens there. And that'll be the sentencing for the first degree intentional homicide, along with several theft charges, which looks like uh, money that she stole uh, while Lynn was alive and then uh, money that she stole from Lynn's estate. And so the uh, first degree intentional homicide, it does come with a mandatory life sentence. However, as we sort of dove into what we went through with the, the case, the judge has some discretion there on whether to allow parole after a period of time. Hmm. So, so we'll, I guess we'll see in April what happens there.
0: Yeah. Uh, personal guess. What do you think? Uh, does she get new attorneys again or are these ones going to actually successfully make it to the sentencing hearing?
1: It wouldn't shock me at all if something goes on with this current attorney that she gets another one. I mean, she's had eight throughout this ordeal. Eight have withdrawn throughout this ordeal. The two that represented her throughout the trial, I don't think their intent, they seem to be sticking with her up until this letter appears that purports to be and says it was a jailhouse letter. Long letter with all kinds of crazy claims in it that, that implicates them. Basically saying that they're the ones that got this letter out of the jail and to the uh, to the friend, you know, like you and I talked about. Certainly, it's possible that that could have happened inadvertently without any, you know, ill intent on their part. I can't imagine they would be in, involved in that. I mean, that just seems like an instant way to ruin your career and get yourself in in criminal trouble.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A- and when the prosecutors argued to keep them uh, on the case, when they objected to these current attorneys withdrawing, they said very clearly, We're we don't believe these attorneys are in, in have done anything wrong and we're not pursuing charges against them. So obviously the state doesn't believe that they they were involved in whatever nonsense Jesse was cooking up. But it's kind of interesting that what throws a big old wrench into the machine here is really just right in line with the kind of crime that she is notorious for. With forging documents and making up fake documents, and this whole uh, fake paper trail that ends up with either money or good favor coming her way.
0: Yeah, it's perfectly within what appears to be her character that something like this would happen. Absolutely. Right. Right. Well, we'll uh, at, at the next update or at some point we'll we'll follow back up. Eventually, I assume she'll get sentenced someday, and uh, whenever that happens, we can talk about it. Thinking of sentencings, uh, not long ago, we covered the case that was dubbed by the media as the boy in the box case, specifically the trial, conviction and sentencing of Tim Ferriter, the the victim's adopted dad. And uh, Mr. Ferriter has made his way back into the news uh, very recently. Let me make sure I get the date right here. It looks like it was uh, maybe January 17th. Looks like that, that's when the reporting came out. So probably within a day of that. Somewhere in there, uh, the judge in Mr. Fereder's case issued a 25-page order. And you're probably thinking, "Well, he was already sentenced. Why? What's the judge doing?" Well, you might remember that Mr. Farreter had requested a post-conviction bond pending appeal. So essentially, he's saying, "Hey, judge, uh, I think there's some issues with my case, and so I want you to let me out so that I'm not incarcerated while I argue my appeal." and Generally speaking, I think these tend to not be granted unless there's some really interesting kind of questionable area, nuance of law, this new kind of thing where the judge really feels like maybe maybe there's an actual chance. They kind of had to go out on a limb. And so maybe the appellate court would be somewhat likely to overturn their decision. but absent something sort of more extreme or unusual like that, these are unlikely to be granted. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You've got a guy here who uh, was convicted by a jury, has been sentenced by a judge, and now he's saying, hey, can you um, just let me out so that I don't have to start serving my sentence until after my appeal is argued? Well, the judge issued his decision and it wasn't just a uh, you know, run of the mill, hey, I've considered this and this is what I've decided. Instead. Uh, The media has reported it as a scorching 25-page order where uh, Mr. Farreter was denied appellate bond, and there was a reason for that. Some of the quotes that are just fascinating and kind of telling for what happened here. From the order, it says, The court is left with a clear and concerning lack of confidence in the trustworthiness of the defendant and multiple witnesses and professionals in this matter. Specifically, what happened here is that through jailhouse calls and some other evidence the state was able to attain, they figured out that Tim was essentially working with friends to try to do a couple things that the court did not take kindly. One of those things was he was working with one of his friends to try to rearrange his assets so that he didn't end up losing things. As an example, he owned outright a truck that was worth about $40,000, and he talked to his friend about selling the truck to his brother-in-law. And from the calls, there's a quote here from the order. It says, you know, sell it to him for a dollar, and the truck is officially theirs. And you know, whenever I get out, he can sell it back to me for a dollar. So maybe that's an option to sell it right now, or would that be intent prior to bankruptcy? Yeah. So they're talking through all these ways, right, that he can sort of squirrel away assets in a way that they don't get taken or absorbed by any of the means, you know, whether it's restitution, fines, whatever that's been ordered in this case. So there was that going on. And then there was also some issues with, uh, I think, some, some fraud in terms of potential jobs that he had lined up. I think there was a friend who was basically saying, you know, yeah, there's a job for him, whatever, but it wasn't at all above board what was being described to the court, and the court did not take kindly to that. Uh, the conversations are described as, quote, at best amount to hiding assets and at worst potential conspiracy to commit bankruptcy fraud. So, yeah, the uh, the court was not happy and denied Mr. Farreter's request for appellate bond, so while his appeals run, he is going to continue to spend time with his newest, bestest friends, who I'm sure aren't too fond of guys who abuse children.
1: Wow. That's so, I mean, I guess the uh, pro tip is if you're trying to get out on bond during your appeal, probably don't be doing shady stuff while you're in the pen. And if you are, don't do it over recorded phone lines.
0: I mean, yeah, exactly. And, uh, huh, yeah, it is. It's bad. I mean, some of the other quotes from the order that just kind of continue to this, this trail of how unhappy the judge was. The judge concluded the court was left with the distinct impression that Mr. Zimmerink, which is a friend of Ferreter's, contrary to his testimony, is indeed holding assets of defendant or otherwise assisting him in the concealment of such assets. It goes on to talk about uh, that uh, job offer letter that I was referencing. And it says that the, this faked Mazda letter uh, must have something to do with a uh, dealership or whatever. I don't know. And motion, it says, represent a shocking and flagrant disregard for the rule of law in an effort to effect a fraud upon the court that cannot be conveniently disavowed by either the defendant or his counsel by claiming that they did not know that they were representing in the motion was a fraudulent fabrication of the first order. So strong words from a court. I am sure at this point, that whole side has lost all the credibility. So thankfully, they should be done in that court. And now they have moved on to the appellate court. But that stuff's going to be part of the record now. And I would imagine it's going to create or could at least potentially create some issues for Mr. Farreter through his appeal and down the road. And certainly just, oh man, makes me uncomfortable just to read that in an order. So not, not great for anybody involved on Farreter's team.
1: Doesn't sound like, and I guess his wife, Tracy, still has her her mess to deal with.
0: Yeah, her trial's upcoming, and it was just recently continued out. It was uh, supposed to happen, I think, in January, uh, and then has been continued out a a few months. And I would imagine they're working, you would think they'd be working toward figuring out some kind of a plea deal, because at this point, writing's on the wall. She should know you know, she might as well get her affairs in order. I think it's a done deal. But yeah, so that'll be another another potential update in the future. So we've covered the Colonial Parkway murders, extortionists, Tupac's case, uh, Lynn Hernan's case, and, uh, you know, the boy in the box, Mr. Ferreter and his fraud on the court. Ouch. Uh, lots of updates, man. I mean, for the uh, number of cases that we've covered and talked about, there are certainly a lot of new developments and interesting things happening. And as they continue to develop and happen, as people are either acquitted or sentenced and and things move on, we will continue to update the listeners on what's going on. So thank you guys for listening. And uh, if you haven't already, subscribe, leave us a rating, uh, a review, tell us what you like or what you don't like. Send us an email, reach out to us on social media. We're everywhere. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the things. uh, We'd love to hear from you.
1: Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.